What's up, everyone, and welcome to Desolation Radio. It's me, your boy, Dan Evans. Last month, we tragically lost the great anarchist academic, David Graeber, who died at the young age of 59. David is an inspiration to countless people on the left as an activist, for he was that rarest of things, an academic who practiced what he preached. He was heavily involved in the Occupy movement, even credited with coining the slogan, we are the 99%. He was active in the Kurdish friendship struggle, even visiting Rojava in Syria when it was under siege by ISIS. And despite being an anarchist, he was a vocal supporter of Jeremy Corbyn and was one of the few on the British left to actively debunk the allegations that Corbyn was anti-Semitic. He also allegedly lost his tenure at Yale because he was blacklisted for his political activity. For me, he is up there with Ralph Miliband as the very best example of a true organic intellectual, someone rooted in activism rather than being detached from it, and his loss is really immeasurable, particularly coming when it did. However, I'm sure he wouldn't have wanted us to mourn but to organize and learn, because that's what he would have done. So today we'll be discussing some of David Graeber's scholarship and ideas. Not all of it, of course, as he was far too prodigious for us to cover everything, but some of what we think are the main contributions and how they can help us understand today's world. I'm joined today by a good friend, Owen Hanmer. Owen is a gardener, a cocktail expert, and a PhD student at Cardiff University, who has used David Graeber's work extensively, and who recently wrote a lovely tribute to him on the Indod website, which you should check out and we'll be linking to after this episode. Oz, how's it going? All right, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Not bad, mate. Uh, not bad. Well, yeah, you wrote a fantastic article for, for Indod, so why don't you briefly tell us, you know, why you think David Graeber was so important as a thinker? I mean, I think, like, for me, it came down to something that was sort of quite simple, but sort of um, missing kind of badly on the left, and, and this is this sort of idea of, you know, actually having an imagination and being kind of, you know, <laughs> being able to unlock that, you know? I mean, he was very like, you know, anyone that's read or seen like kind of David Graeber speak knows that, you know, he was kind of funny and kind of playful sort of guy. And because of that, he was very, like very disarming of things that are kind of super powerful. You know, you speak of capitalism and the state, uh, things that are these kind of, you know, sort of all encompassing things around us. He made kind of um, seem a lot weaker, I guess, in some ways, you know, and um so, so, so I don't know. I mean, I guess it's that thing, isn't it? Anyone that reads stuff on the left, I mean, for me, usually you come away feeling kind of defeated, or you know, <laughs> you know, you just have the sense of nihilism or whatever. And I think Graeber was actually like, you know, was the first time him and Kropotkin really, you know, the first time I felt the opposite of that. You know, you feel, you read something, you feel more powerful as a result of it. And I think that's what it was with Graeber, kind of, you know, it was kind of a simple thing. Yeah, yeah, it should, you know, it shouldn't be as rare as it is. I, I mean, I used Graeber for a, a couple of lectures I was doing in, in Bath Uni. And I remember feeling exactly that, you know, just like, I think it was Democracy, Democracy Project, I think it was. And I remember coming away feeling genuinely hopeful and sort of inspired, which, as you said, is not something that you, that you normally feel. And I mean, you know, like this podcast is certainly guilty of like uh, trading in the... <laughs> But yeah, he, he, yeah, he's just a, a fantastic mind and seemingly a fantastic bloke. And I'm really gutted that we didn't get him on this podcast. I think, I think he probably would have, would have come on because that seems to be the sort of guy he was like. Uh, and it's also reassuring, you know, to, to read. It was also really reassuring to read stuff by someone. And I know it sounds bad, but like I'm such a cynical person when it comes to academia that, you know, when you actually read stuff by an academic who's, who you know walks the walk, um, I don't know, it just gives it more gravitas and I just listen to them more, basically. It wasn't just something that he did 
as a performance. Absolutely. I mean, I think he adds like, you know, I mean, like you pointed to there, he was kind of blacklisted, I think, in, in the US. Yeah. And, uh, after, I think basically for being a, a sort of anarchist academic, I saw this nice thing written where someone said, you know, it was great that the academic was punished for being an anarchist. Great, but the anarchist is forgiven for being an academic. And, uh, you know, he, he adds like a sort of, yeah, kind of a friction, like definite friction with, uh, with academia. He's got this uh, book called uh, Fragments of an Anarchist Anthropology, which is kind of a short kind of book, but it kind of has the seeds of all his ideas in there. And he absolutely slates academia, isn't it? You know, because I mean, the opening section is, um, do you know, why aren't there any anarchist academics? You know, where are they? <laughs> And uh, basically goes around just destroying academia, you know, the type of language used and, yeah, and all this exactly. stuff that creates a lot of exclusion, really, by sort of radical left academics also. Well, you can see, I think, some of the, um, some of the seeds of what he wrote later in when he was talking about when he was like blacklisted at Yale, uh, because he said they use words like collegiality to sort of disguise a massive bullshit, basically, you know, prepared to engage in the sort of performance that they require you to do, you know, to pretend to be working, to attend pointless meetings, uh, to, you know, to kiss people's asses and so on. That's what, those are all the things in, incorporated by the term like collegiality. And there's loads of other euphemisms that people use in academic, academia, like being a good, being a good citizen. And he was just, yeah, able to cut through all that bollocks. He has this, uh, I have this nice quote by him actually, he says, you know, when he's describing academia, about, you know, it turns intellectual debate into a kind of parody of sectarian politics with everyone trying to re reduce each other's arguments into ridiculous caricatures yeah, so yeah. as to declare them not only wrong but also evil and dangerous. Even if the debate is usually taking place in language so arcane that no one who could not afford seven years of grad school would have any way of knowing the debate was going on at all. So it just like sums up, but I mean it sums up Twitter also I think for me, leftist Twitter as well, but in my mind, absolutely, absolutely a genius, you know. I mean, when you read his stuff, he sort of brings all these sort of random ideas together. I mean, his work isn't necessarily always coherent, I don't think, but he does bring a lot of different ideas together in a sort of non-sectarian way and kind of comes out with something that is sort of, you know, in his own style, sort of that playful and fun and sort of creative way. And, you know, absolutely, I think, disarms a lot of things that, around us and kind of I think helps us realize I think that there are a lot of possibilities around us in terms of you know not just intellectually but like practically as well you know one of the well there's a lot of things that he wrote about that I think have come to the fore particularly during the COVID crisis um, and one of the ones that comes to mind instantly work on bullshit jobs um, I want to just I mean this, this is something I remember reading in Strike magazine when it first came out uh, and then obviously turned it into a book I'll, I'll quote the opening uh, salvo from Strike. He says, in the year 1930, John Maynard Keynes predicted that by century's end, technology would have advanced sufficiently that countries like Great Britain or the United States would have achieved a 15-hour work week. There's every reason to believe he was right. In technological terms, we are quite capable of this. And yet it didn't happen. Instead, technology has been marshaled, if anything, to figure out ways to wake us, make us all work more. In order to achieve this, jobs have had to be created that are effectively pointless. Huge swathes of people in Europe and North America in particular spend their entire working lives performing tasks they secretly believe do not really need to be performed. The moral and spiritual damage that comes from this situation is profound. It's a scar across our collective soul. 
yet virtually no one talks about it. That actually goes to what he says about anthropology. You know, he says anthropology is about uncovering taboos, you know, things that everyone knows but no one talks about. For me, it's like uh, Bullshit Jobs was like the first thing I think I read by him as well because it only came out a couple of years ago. Uh, but yeah, that, that, well, I mean, the book came out a couple of years ago. I think the strike article is enough, but if you really want more detail, I guess the book, you know, is kind of, it's, there's a lot of funny quotes in there. But I mean, you know, he wrote that article for Strike and I think he thought it was an experiment, like, and then it sort of exploded and it kind of went like yeah. into like 20 languages and spread around the world. And yeah, it's all these funny comments on the, on the kind of article by like uh, people being like, oh, I'm a, I'm a corporate lawyer. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Useless. I'm useless to society. What should I do? You know? And like part of me is kind of like, you know, kind of enjoys these kind of, you know, rich corporate lawyers, like kind of <laughs> sort of sulking and crying in this sort of way. And I think probably part of him got a bit of a dig out of that as well. But you know, they, they, then basically, I think he was like, oh, geez, you know, kept getting these comments. So he, uh, was something like he set up an email, like a Gmail account saying, like, yeah, to collate like, them. Yeah, if I got a bullshit job at gmail.com or something. And just, <laughs> and that's how he collected all the data. And he said it just kind of wrote itself. He just kept, kept getting streams of emails from people who, uh, you know, uh, defined themselves as having a bullshit job. You know, it's not. You know, I mean, one of the things he said is, you know, it's not an objective thing. You know, he's not going out there saying your job is bullshit. It's these people themselves being like, oh, you know, my job is actually meaningless. Like, what is the point in what I'm doing? <laughs> yeah, there's like, there's like a, there was an anime element, wasn't it? Um, I'm going to continue with the quote now, because I mean, actually the strike article is extremely short and, you know, everyone should read it because it literally takes up you know, what, two or three minute read. He says, basically, rather than allowing a massive reduction of working hours to free the world's population to pursue their own projects, pleasures, visions, and ideas, we've seen the ballooning of not even so much as the service sector as of the administrative sector, up to and including the creation of whole new industries like financial services or telemarketing, with the unprecedented expansion of sectors like corporate law, academic and health administration, human resources, public relations, and these numbers don't even reflect on all the people whose job is to provide administrative, technical or security support, support for those industries. Or for that matter, the whole host of ancillary industries, dog washers, all night pizza delivery that only exists because everyone else is spending so much time working in all the other ones. These are what I propose to call bullshit jobs. It's as if someone was out there making up pointless jobs just for the sake of keeping us all working. So this is something that was obviously happening in COVID. I mean, one of, the thing, one of the things to take away from bullshit jobs as well is the, is the class element as well. I mean, that, that is, is key. And he says, in our society, there seems to be a general rule that the more obviously one's work benefits people, benefits other people rather, the less one is likely to be paid for it. Again, an objective measure is hard to find, but one easy way to get a sense is to ask, what would happen were this entire class of people simply to disappear? Say what you like about nurses, garbage collectors, or mechanics. It's obvious were they to vanish in a puff of smoke, the results would be immediate and catastrophic. And he says equally, corporate lawyers, human resources people, uh, lobbyists, all these other telemarketers, all these people, you know, these jobs do not need to exist. And during COVID, that's been thrown, that's been really demonstrated really sharply, which we need from yeah. essential workers and how much we don't actually need these other sort of parasitic and pointless professions, which yeah. you just, you know, society, the world keeps turning. They don't yeah. produce any value or any social value. They may produce, they produce profit, no doubt, but they don't produce any social value or, um, or utility. That's surely got to be one of the main things that people have noticed during COVID, just the, the importance of jobs that are previously dismissed as, you know, low paid or menial 
and how they, you know they're the ones that actually keep society going. Absolutely, class yeah. element, and how how badly paid they are. Yeah, because I mean that's the thing, isn't it? That this inverse relationship between the social value and economic value, the jobs yeah. that you're speaking about, you know. So you have these kind of highly prestigious jobs, you know, the the bullshit essentially, and then these these really kind of hard, often sort of blue collar jobs, <coughs> that are, you know the uh, very difficult jobs things like cleaning or like caring various forms of formal and informal care work or you know like all the stuff you said that happens during covid that essentially keeps society ticking over i mean there was you know there's a reason i guess that you know i mean we've always said i guess on the left that the working class produce value in that sense but then this sort of, sort of reorientates it in a way and says uh, working class also keeps society taking over, like because we would literally die if there wasn't anybody to do. Yeah, that. it's literally not just about value; it's like it's yeah, yeah. it's reproductive. It's reproductive, you know, and yeah. it, it keeps society going in in general, doesn't it? Yeah, and he, that's like I mean, he kind of uses like I mean, feminists, Marxist feminists have been saying this for quite a while. Yeah, yeah. You know, the the neglect of the realm of social reproduction and stuff. So, I mean, and he draws on that, and he's like, you know, there's this idea that that workers produce and he's saying well he starts to move more towards this idea that actually most work that happens in society is either maintaining existing things that are produced or reproducing things in general so you know you have the saying of like like a cup or a plate is produced once but you know you wash it maybe like 10,000 times and that and that is something you know that is always happening around us and it's a type of work as well yeah it's, it's kind of i think definitely it has to you know he speaks then about kind of the, the revolt of the caring classes i mean he was ultimately saying that i think this is this is the kind of area that i guess on the left we should be focusing our energy around i think funnily enough i'm about to do a pod on uh, reproductive uh, you know wages for housework and so reach you with captain ashton so watch this space one of the things i've noticed during um covid I've spoken to many of my, you know, bourgeois friends. Obviously, I'm a key worker. And I've been working through it. Um, just, uh, just thought I'd drop that in there. But um, you know, speaking to my friends who've been able to work uh, from home in their bullshit, very well-paid jobs. One of the things I've noticed is the charade of work they've got to go to, got to go through. Um, you know, the ones that haven't been furloughed have been, you know, even if, for example, I don't know, they're whatever uh, sector of the economy that they are employed in has essentially shut down because of COVID. Either people aren't buying anything or, or, you know, you can't sell things to people or whatever, or, or, you know, whatever. Um, they've nonetheless got to go through the relentless charade of, you know, endless Zoom meetings, producing Excel. Uh, it's the equivalent of being made to dig, whereas like laborers, if you did hard labor back in the day, you used to have to dig holes and fill them back up. It's kind of like the you know the mental uh, and middle class version of that you know like producing yeah. spreadsheets on things. It, it you know people can't be left to just do nothing, even if yeah. nothing for them to do. That's one of the big things he talks about is that you know the emperor's new clothes with a lot of this work is that you know there isn't anything to do. Act busy and 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 basically an entire layer of bureaucracy and stuff becomes invented to give the impression of going to work. And I think that's really been evident. <laughs> during covid you know and people have said to us on the podcast you know the, about examples of, of of how they've had to sort of invent ways to pretend to be at work and what is interesting as well obviously there is a class dimension the people who have to pretend keep the charade up more and more are the middle managers who do the least productive work and do the less we know we know they're the, the most pointless people in the office everyone knows that but they're the ones who are the best at 
perform in this charade. You know, they're the best ones at organizing pointless meetings. They're the best ones at having Zooms. They're the best ones at responding to emails or creating pointless work when none exists. You know, in one way, you could look back at our Bourdieu episode and argue that that is in itself, you know, the ability to understand the rules of the game is, is a form of cultural capital. Mm. Uh, the new epoch of bullshit jobs, you know, and these people are willing to play that game to get ahead economically. He talks a bit in bullshit jobs. I guess it's about, it's not new, but it's, you know, it's a new reading of Marx's theory of alienation, you know, that, you know, it's a new form where so many people just know that their job and their role is pointless and bullshit. Those are the people who were, you know, uh, emailing him after he identified the, the phenomena of bullshit and pointless jobs. And I mean, but this is interesting. I mean, I, I can't work out whether or not he necessarily has sympathy for this sector of people. He does, he mm-hmm. does it's very, very damaging. We can talk about the class element and, and how it, the func- their function in a minute. But yeah, what do you reckon? I, th- I think that that's the thing. I, m- I remember, like, you know, I've seen him say that, you know, the idea isn't that, like, that he has some sort of, that he wants to get rid of all these people doing these jobs. It's just that these jobs shouldn't exist. And I think that, in yeah. general, he, he thinks, well, imagine what people could do if they didn't have to spend their time doing things so pointless, because he's kind of saying, well, you know, even, like, even like well, I mean, it's, it's less the case, but, you know, most people have some sort of psychological needs to do something for other people as well, you know, to feel useful yeah. for other people and to do a job that they feel is, is useful. That's certainly me. I'm, I'm, I'm so caring. I have, to, <laughs> I have to be helping people all times, you know? Yeah, you're a hero. But, you know, I mean, one of the things about it is like, you know, the, one of the key things I thought is like I was saying earlier with his sort of disarming ability was, you know, capitalism has always been sold as this sort of efficient system that it's streamlined work, you know, to get rid of this bullshit. Because, I mean, you always hear, like, you'd say, I mean, there's a few things. I think if you'd, you'd say bullshit jobs to a right winger, you know, they'd either be like having a go at the arts, like, oh, yeah, the bullshit kind of musician or whatever. Whereas, you know, of course, you know, I don't know who these robots are. Well, that's are. what they took. Well, that's basically the narrative that's emerged recently with. Yeah ballerina meme you know uh, not the meme the ballerina advert you know she's going to retrain as, as yeah. and things like that it's kind of people you know the, the implicit assumption is like well this ballet is pointless these are like i mean maybe there's these kind of weirdos on the right who don't listen to music i don't know but like well a lot of posh people don't like music that, but that's uh, but that's neither you know there but i mean that's one of the weird pathologies of rich posh people is that they don't like music <laughs> they don't I mean, the, the other thing that he's on about is like with this, you know, streamlining thing is that, you know, these bullshit jobs, people, are, you know, would associate them, first of all, with like the Soviet Union or something, but they'd also associate it with the public sector. But he's saying this is much worse in the private sector, you know, like, you, you know, there's always that kind of thing that you hear people say of like, you know, you see like some like council workers digging a hole and there's like one person digging and five people watching. Like that's that's like quite a common kind of, thing you hear people say he's like private sector is like way 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 worse than than the kind of bullshitization of the public sector or whatever so i mean it's kind of interesting and then i think one of the interesting thing is about i mean this is a theme that emerges all the way through his work is that you know the bullshit jobs thing i mean it's one thing to sort of describe a phenomena and have people talk oh my job is bullshit but you know he's arguing basically essentially this is about control you know you, you we can't have a population that works less and thinks more, which, you know, universal basic income potentially could facilitate. So instead, you know, you've got to push work 
as an ideology in and of itself. You know, um, you make people doing useless work, working incredibly hard, and feel terrible if they aren't working. Um, this is what we're trying to get David Frayne on the podcast to talk about. You know, the work dogma and how, you know, even when we're resting, it's basically just prep for work. You know, it's like you like and recharge, you watch Netflix. And you know, you've got to keep your phone on at all times. People checking their work emails on the weekend, in the evening, and so on. And it's an invidious way of uh, it's a form of social control. You know, work work as an ideology. And I also think it's it's really interesting because it it's a material analysis of like social relations, which like I guess explains now why there's a lack of solidarity amongst different groups of people. There's a, a quick quote. He says. There's useful workers, for example, you know, public sector, uh, who are relentlessly targeted and their work degraded and made impossible and sort of shat on by the media, you know, nurses, doctors, teachers. And he says in many ways, it feels as if people resent them for having social use. You know, people realise these people are doing important stuff subconsciously. That's why they hate them. Uh, And he says the remainder of the population are divided between a terrorised stratum of the universally reviled and employed and then a larger stratum who are basically paid to do nothing. But this is the key, I think, in positions designed to make them identify with the perspectives and sensibilities of the ruling class, so managers, administrators, and particularly as financial avatars, but at the same time fostering a simmering resentment against anyone whose work is a clear and an undeniable social value. Clearly, the system was never consciously designed. It emerged from almost a century of trial and error. But it's the only explanation for why despite our technological capacities, we're all not working three or four hour days. I think mm-hmm. it's really interesting um, because when we look at the change in class character and class structure of society and like the gig, emergency gig economy, I think one of the most awful things is about how people in, you know, the white collar working class, uh, I'm thinking about the, the local economy in particular in South Wales, so like, you know, call centres and so on, how these people have basically been peeled off and have started to sort of identify, you know, not with the working class, but with with the ruling class, essentially. And that's what that's what I think he's getting at there. Yeah, I mean, it, like that that kind of centri- centrism uh, article that he produced was kind of in that in that zone. But I mean, one of the other things that I was just thinking about when you were speaking there was that you know, I mean, we all have experience of this stuff. I mean, that's one of the great things of kind of Graeber is like you you read his stuff. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I remember that time and where, you know, and it makes things kind of obvious. It's kind of, Bullshit Jobs is kind of like a, you know, thing that everybody knew existed but yeah. can't, couldn't artic- articulate. I mean, if you speak to teachers or something, like, and you have, you know, they're overwhelmed by bureaucracy, yeah. <laughs> uh, management, monitoring of what they're doing, and actually all it results in is them being incapable of doing their job uh, well, you know, really. And he says the same, obviously, from a university perspective, but he's like... You know, you, you look at like the, how the number of like, um, say, teaching staff and students is kind of stayed sort of the same, he says, you know, he's looking at data. But you look at the number of sort of administration, supervisory, middle manager kind of roles, this increased by something like 200 percent. He's like the, the, the irony was that these jobs were supposed to mean that the teaching staff could do their could like get on with the teacher really but he's like all the all that you speak to teaching staff now in universities and they're doing more more paperwork than ever more bureaucracy than ever so the, yeah. the bureaucrats don't actually take away any anything they just create bureaucracy you know it's, it doesn't actually take anything away from people actually doing things yeah it's incredible and, and then this is well, well bullshit jobs i think fed into 
one of his last works, which is, well, maybe it was the last work. When did it come out? Oh, it was before Bullshit Jobs, actually. Um, the, he's got a, he had a, basically a book called Utopia of Rules, which is, you know, and in many, many ways, what you just said, I mean, I always think there's a bit of a parallel between these two. Mark Fisher has a lot of work on that in Capitalist Realism, you know, about how inefficient, like teaching or whatever, had become um, and, and the amount of bureaucracy that neoliberalism created for itself, which is like an under an underexplored element of, or, you know, until Graeber, an underexplored element of neoliberalism. And yeah, in the, in the utopia of rules is basically him fleshing that out, you know, how like, how mindless, you know, the, 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 how insane rather the levels of bureaucracy are now in, um, in our day-to-day lives, not, you know, not just in our works, but in our, di- not just in our work, but in our day-to-day lives because of like the, the, you know, the Byzantine ways that things are privatized responsibility and stuff is is diffused you can't speak to anyone if you want to if you've got a problem with you know your internet or your what your phone you know good luck speaking to someone but also obviously applies within the workplace recently he's applied i get think the logic of the utopia of rules to to politics and the right uh, you know and, and the, the rise of centrism uh, or rather the pathologies of centrism and the rise of of like people like donald trump and Boris Johnson. do you want to speak a bit about about all that was yeah sure yeah there was because it was kind of an interesting video during the rhymes the other day and he was speaking about this on uh, you know and he was like you know it's basically describing this kind of dynamic where uh, the center and the far right or the populist right whatever you want to call it have this sort of symbiotic relationship that feed off each other and he's like you know you have this kind of classic kind of cent- modern centrist the obama the macron type um, and he, you know, he said that the only appeal, possible appeal of that politics is at least they're not Nazis, you know. And, <laughs> and, uh, and he's like, well, what do they actually stand for? Like nobody really knows what they stand for. And he says, you know, and basically, I mean, his thing is, you know, these kind of changing class relations and this bureaucracy stuff. He says, well, you know, it's, it's really a gift from the centre to the, to the right in a way, because, you know, the centre is sort of closely identified with bureaucrats and professionals in suits and things. And then you have like, you know, he's like about, you have like the types like, you know, he said George Bush was kind of uh, the epitome of it, but you also have Trump and Johnson and stuff doing the same. You know, and he says you have like Bush coming along, kind of he calls says he was acting like a yokel type of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, and then you have the these sort of elite centrists sneering at, at Bush, and then all of a sudden, you know, you have like kind of people looking at looking at these kind of centrists, thinking, oh, I bet they think that about me as well, you know. And yeah. so you know, the center feeds the right in that way. But I mean, it's huge. I mean, like he did start to apply that in a sort of more theoretical way. I mean, that was just him sort of riffing I guess as he does but he was like you know he had this article just after the election called something like you know how the centre blows itself up um, and you know it was an analysis really of kind of how the Corbyn project failed by trying to accommodate this essentially you know the bureaucrats and the kind of care worker at the same time he says you know on the one hand you have these kind of you know he's these kind of nurses who say their immediate kind of uh, class friction, he says, is with the bureaucrats who are making their job help. Rather than like, you know, any immediate exploiter, like, you know, a factory owner or something, it's not, it's, it's, it's the bureaucratic systems. Yeah. 
And, you know, he thinks the centre is defined really by this kind of love of bureaucracy and rules and regulation. Yeah. And that essentially the, the, these kind of this populist right um, identified, obviously it identified other things, you know, had migrants as scapegoats and uh, things like that. And there's obviously an element, you know, a big element of racism and everything else. But he was like, there was also this other element that they identified of the, you know, the Brussels bureaucrat who was detached from, you know, society, but just did these things that people then experienced. And then you said the far right have kind of uh, capitalised on that dynamic, uh, yeah, whereas I mean, the left have tried to accommodate it. Absolutely, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, but if you look at the aesthetic of centrism, you know, you know, as well as their corporate beliefs, so they don't really have any ideology other than an allegiance to systems, you know, the, you know, playing by the rules it's like almost like milk you know milk monitorism but that, that's that's kind of how you describe most of the people in the political center you know a belief in parliamentary democracy regardless of the power clear power inequalities and wealth inequalities basically be nice play by the rules kind of also it has this like aesthetic particular aesthetic of uh you know finger wagging moralism and, you know, like the EU, I mean, I know a lot of people disagree, but like the EU, as you said, it, it is a bureaucratic institution and they fucking loved it. So it's an, it was a bureaucratic and democratic institution and people like generally fell in love with it. I think I agree with this quote from the centrism article, because one of the things that people have never understood, which I think is really important to understand is, you know, he's like, how does someone like Trump and Boris Johnson, people who are obviously pampered idiots, you know, rich idiots with no class interests of working class people, you know, how have they managed to nonetheless win so many working class people over? And he says it's because, you know, they're identified with people who just don't triangulate or do focus groups or, or prevaricate and, and, and chat shit. They're just straight with people. Um, and, and coming from, you know, Blairism and Cameronism and all this sort of their attendant bollocks, that's kind of like refreshing to people. So I'll, I'll read the quote here. He says, all this explains the otherwise mysterious popular appeal of the disorganized, impulsive, shambolic. Uh, but nonetheless, cut to the chase, get things done, personas cultivated by men like Trump and Johnson. Yes, they're children privileged in every possible sense of the term. Yes, they're pathological liars. Yes, they don't seem to care about anyone but themselves. But they also present themselves as the precise opposite of the infuriating administrator whose endless appeals to rules and demands for additional meetings, paperwork, motivational seminars makes it impossible for you to do your job. In the UK, the game of Brexit politics has been to manoeuvre the Labour left in a position where it's a force to identify itself with that same infuriating administrator. And yeah, the Leave campaign took care, you know, took aim at, at bureaucrats and, and bureaucracy as an as a thing in and of itself, you know, because that is the stuff, as you said, which which does actually ruin people's lives. And that's what he was saying was like, you know, you had like obviously. I mean, I can't believe we're still speaking about Brexit and stuff and like, you know, the referendum, but like, I mean, oh, I think it, <laughs> it kind of sums up a lot of it, you know, in terms of like, I think the centre of like a huge or a huge problem to the left in general. Like, I mean, he, he kind of speaks about this, you know, process, obviously Corbyn, like leading up to Brexit and whatever, had a fairly solid uh, stance, yeah, yeah. Of, you know, remaining in form or whatever. And then 2017 election, he kind of, you know, obviously had a huge development of support and all this other stuff. And for, for Graeber, he says, the point was where he was kind of cornered by the centrists to develop this second referendum narrative. You yeah, know, yeah. More pressure on him to do this. He kind of, I mean, from the outside, I was, you know, was, we all knew it was a disaster. And he was kind of like, 
I guess, turned into something that he didn't want to be. Like Graeber says, he became this um, politician, like he became a bureaucrat and he became a suit as a result of like, kind yeah. of into this kind of centrist narrative. And, and like he says, the centre ultimately just blew itself up. Like you look at the, like the, I've got a stat here that he quotes, and where is it? Like Labour lost 54 seats to the Tories, 52 of them in leave voting districts. Yeah. Only three, Dennis Skinner, Laura Pidcock and Laura Smith, were from the radical left of the party. And so he says dozens of moderates had effectively blown themselves up. And like even the Tories did, like the Tories got rid of all the Remainers and, the, you know. And ironically, when you, when, you, when you do that point, when you make that point, you get the you get the moralistic bureaucratic argument back. You're like, ah, Corbett, you know, um, from people saying, uh, actually, I think you'll find uh, Matt Ford said that, um, you know, Labour actually lost, you know, they gained more in Remain areas, blah, blah, blah. One of the things I was reflecting on myself was uh, after reading the centrism article and, you know, to be honest, <laughs> skim reading most of the utopia of rules is the class dimension of the world of work and how, I mean, this is this may be me dealing in caricatures now, but one of the liberating things about my current, you know, what I would describe as like a proletarian work environment is that there's not the absence of, of bullshit and, and bureaucracy, but it is minimised. People are welcome uh, that that stuff is is kept away from. It, it is not is not so invasive in, I would say, blue-collar professions as it is sort of middle-class and and other bullshit professions, I think, because people instinctively hate it and they won't tolerate, you know, and it's, it's also alien to people, you know. And, and this is my experience of being on the left, is that people on the left, like, often can't understand why, like, in organising, you don't want, I don't want to do endless Zoom meetings. You know, I don't want to do a workshop on my weekend because, yeah. like, it, because that's replicating the, the worst elements of academia that I absolutely hated, you know. I don't, I don't like this stuff. It's alienating in so in so many ways, it's not enjoyable. We all know it's pointless. And you know, for me personally, like the refreshing thing about my you know current workplace, and when I think back to other more blue collar jobs I've done, is that you know if someone was shit, you could tell them they were shit. For example, or if you didn't like something, you could talk about it. But you know, if you go to some you know academia or an office environment and things like that, you know, your middle class milieus, there are a whole new set of rules and regulations to stop basic messages being shared with people. Um, and you've, you know, you've got the, the role of human resources and so on. I know it keep, uh, probably, it's probably straying back to the bullshit jobs thing. People, you know, you know, people just don't tolerate. I think there's a tolerance yeah. for bullshit or there's a bullshit detector, which is a lot stronger in working class people. Yeah. One of the jobs that he described as the kind of, you know, he had five categories of it, which we don't go through. But one of them was being a taskmaster, which is, I think what we usually associate with sort of a form of authority or something or managerialism or something within the, within the workplace. And I remember like, you know, I mean, after the, after the last financial crisis, I was working in this call center, right. And, you know, you're making calls or whatever, and there'd be this guy sat in a separate room who would be listening in, yeah. making, making sure that you were kind of, uh, you know, doing the questionnaires right or whatever, but also he'd be... James Bloodworth. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you, like I remember a few times where you're like, God, this is terrible. So you'd maybe leave the phone ring for like a minute because nobody was answering. And you'd get like a minute of peace, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they'd come in and they'd like, you know, they'd be like, no, no, you have to, you can only ring for 20 seconds. 
years ago. And I mean, that's like the epitome of kind of the bullshit jobs and how it's tied into this type of force, you know. Well, equally, I mean, this is, this is again, probably, a, again, a tangent going off in the centrism stuff. But I do think the way centrists behave on Twitter, it's like, um, it's a bit like the Karens in America in the way that, like, I've gone to a lot of Twitter beefs, for example. It's only people with EU flags and, uh, you know, Blairites in their sort of uh, Twitter bio who've tried to report me to my manager because they love rules and, you know, and they use rules as a way of like enforcing social control in their class position. Like, you know, what was it I got reported to Cardiff Uni for um, promoting Robert Mugabe, you know, for example. Um, anyway, I won't go down that uh, <laughs> uh, wormhole. Anyway, all right, I think we've sort of covered that. The other bit of Graeber's uh, work, which I think has come to the fore um, during COVID, is the role of debt. So obviously, one of his, that, you know, that's one of his major works. Do you want to talk about a bit about debt? Sure, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's again, I mean, Graeber was always trying to answer the big questions, you know. I mean, he's speaking about the role of jobs in society or like debt or, you know, he's trying to, he really is ta- trying to tackle some of the big questions. I think it's quite, in that way, it's kind of quite uh, hard to grasp where the centre of some of his stuff is at times. And kind of debt is one of those things for me. I was like, it's a massive book, so I've only dipped in and out of it, to be honest. And, you know, I mean, he's kind of taken this sort of, as he always does, I think he kind of ties in this sort of micro-anthropological lens with a, a sort of macro-large-scale analysis of the world. Yeah. I guess, you, you know, if you do something like that, you're going to get people tripping you up and it's probably some people would be critical of some of his arguments but we should we should actually i mean should actually point out this but you know i think a lot like bourdieu you know graber isn't someone who's just like a polemicist you know it is based on you know empirical anthropological uh, observation you know like going to like he speaks like remote tribes uh you know it's a classic anthropology and ethnography you know actually studying it well um and that's where and that, and that's what you know true anthropology and ethnography is and and and, and I think that's that's often overlooked you know yeah. doesn't just come off yes he is a great mind and he was thinking about these things but he's thinking about these high level concepts whilst talking and observing people Absolutely. in life and that's how you sort of get to understand things better don't you I think that's one of the one of the key things like you were saying is you know I mean he did a lot of research in Madagascar you know, I think he did, like, that's been, like, one of his main focus. But, I mean, debt is an example. It's called debt the first 5,000 years or something. Like, you know, he kind of, like, heard someone say that he tends to think in, like, thousand-year chunks or something. You know, he just has this huge uh, knowledge of, yeah. uh, of of human kind of history and, and, you know, across space and time, really. But, I mean, I think that that's why he's sort of liberating as a thinker and writer is because he's... Um, he's open to these things, you know, he can, he's, re- he's referencing possibilities that have and do exist all the time, you know, he's not just sort of dreaming up fantasies behind his desk, you know. So I guess the orthodox interpretation of money historically is that, you know, money emerged as a form of sort of barter between people and peoples. But I guess, so am I right in thinking of what he basically says is that money is actually rooted in, in debt? Yeah, essentially, I mean, like my grasp of economics is is pretty <laughs> shocking to be honest. Classic I, don't, I don't consider that to be. I'm not offended by that, but like you know, yeah, you know, there's this idea I think that that money and markets evolved out of a form of barter. You know, so you know, I exchange one cow for your twenty chickens, and you know, that's yeah, a yeah. 
that's a form of value in those two things and then you might value how much that cow is worth compared to a canoe or something and those you know people tended to think that that was how kind of traditional societies functioned and stuff like that and yeah and, and essentially markets and money were invented to make it uh, just as a better form of that you know is kind of as it became more complex yeah yeah scales, scales increased as societies kind of you know and, and graeber basically said that that was bullshit and that, you know there's no anthropologists have been saying for a long time that, that there's no evidence that but what actually was actually the thing that kind of resulted in that kind of the creation of money, you know, instead he says that actually barter only really happens when it was with a stranger, you know, because there's that yeah. sort of reciprocal, direct reciprocal thing. But otherwise these, you know, it was more sort of like uh, forms of kind of mutual obligation and promises that were kind of happen in societies and still happen in societies, which is important. And he says that, you know, there were these forms of kind of credit and therefore forms of debt that were that were functioning way way before there was anything like money you know he says like in ancient mesopotamia like around 3500 bc there were forms of debt you know but it was kind of it was it was sort of vague ious you know it was embedded in social relations and it was kind of you know you'd have like accounts kept on clay tablets and you know the, i think the important thing was it was sort of this was just how society was functioning. It was these sort of circulating types of debt. And so then he, he basically says money was invented as a way to quantify that. So rather than it being sort of a vague IOU as a sort of social relation between people, the money was invented so that you could measure that and you could, you know, you turn it into a form of mathematics. I mean, that was his vision. And that was what he said, essentially, that was where money came from. And so then he differentiates between debt and obligation because he says then debt is always a form of money and therefore you know when you look at, i guess modern society is a or you know western society i suppose more you know it's a form of um control as well you know because debt is always a company his thing was that this type of debt when you introduce money into that relationship uh, it depersonalizes it but it also introduces a form of control yeah, I mean, that's one, again, this is one of the continuing themes in Graeber's work is the idea of uh, strategies used by social, you know, as a form of social control, just like, you know, the work ideology is a form of social control. You know, he says the normalization of debt uh, as a moral argument is a form of social control and is frequently used to justify existing inequalities. And, you know, and, and, and one of the things we've seen most clearly during COVID, not just in the, you know, Wales, but in the UK, um, I think are you know, is, is this the moral argument or, you know, the moral dimension of debt, you know, debt is a moral thing, you know, like, um, you can't give people money for nothing. You know, we can't pay people, uh, not working all day, but particularly in the things I'm involved in now in like tenants unions is the way that, you know, uh, landlords have had a mortgage holiday in Wales. They've used the devolved powers to give, uh, first time home buyers a stamp duty holiday, which I think has cost about 40 million. But, when it comes to tenants who owe landlords money because they haven't been able to pay because they lost a job during COVID, the idea of writing that debt off is seen as ridiculous because you know, there's a, you know, you have, you, you have to pay people back, you know, and it's the same logic used in, you know, Sunak talking about austerity, using the household budget, live within your means and all that narrative. And it, it's clearly a, and there's clearly a, 
again a, a class element to it isn't it it's always the mm-hmm. was the poorest in society who have yeah. to have to pay their debts and live within their means and, and are preyed on by usurers like uh, you know oh, yeah. payday loans companies in particular Absolutely. and he says isn't it there's like a it's a zero-sum game it's like if the government wants to like balance its books then you know a lot of people like us we're going to get into debt to take one example yeah i mean it's like it's a huge moral thing i mean that was what he was saying is similar to bullshit jobs really but you know these arguments are often held together by sort of moral yeah moral arguments these things are held together by moral arguments rather than actual economic ones you know and um, like you said you know there's an expectation that you should pay your debt back or that having debt is a shame you know he says even yeah in some languages in some some languages like you know debt is the same, the same word for debt is the same word for sin or guilt for example and so like he has all these examples across you know obviously 5000 years of history explaining like how debt has worked at various points and stuff and i mean it's it's a kind of a hard book to read i think but yes yeah, it's, it's i think that's the core of it is that it's this moral moral kind of argument around it and he's like you know you look through history and there's always been a sort of forgiveness of debt at various points you know like yeah debt jubilee like you said in the old testament there was something like uh, there was a debt jubilee declared every 50 years or something i mean apropos, well it's not apropos of nothing but funny enough i don't know why i was looking at this the other day but just as debt as as a moral argument is sort of is still here in society like um and it's not going away this idea that you know you have to pay your debts um, you know, don't get into debt if you don't want to pay it back and all this stuff. The same can't be said of like usury, you know, like usury, you know, i.e. charging interest on loans to people in debt, you know, used to be like universally reviled as a terrible sin and completely immoral. Whereas now you've got like payday loan companies on every high street or whatever, and everyone uses them and, and they're just seen as, it's seen as almost completely normal, you know, rather than them being exploited, you know, and basically in every religion, in every organized religion, usury has been banned you yeah know, exploit your, your fellow man by charging uh, interest on loans essentially but that is you know the, the moral outrage regarding that in ca- modern capitalist society has completely disappeared which i guess that's the that's the other side of the coin of debt becoming this idea of shame and you have to pay your debts back um, there is no shame associated with exploiting people in debt yeah i mean that was one of the things you know i guess as a sort of trained anthropologist he was always, I guess, asking what sort of assumptions are made about this, you know, what moral arguments, what taboos do we have, you know, because we have them here as well, obviously, like you can say anything you want about certain things, but things like debt are kind of not very widely discussed, which is, I guess, partly why we don't know what to do about it or know much about it or really even question it, you know. And I mean, he kind of, like this whole barter and exchange thing, he says, it really starts from this, it's a kind of a convenient narrative for modern economics where you start with this position that sort of Adam Smith had, that, you know, that, that you'd, you'd simply just barter between each other. Um, yeah. And, and it, was, it, was, it was like that. That was sort of a natural way to, uh, I guess, distribute goods because humans were self-interested and all this other stuff. And he says that actually, you know, that was the premise of economics, that when you actually start to question it it just simply isn't true and it actually isn't even true in our, our own society so he goes on and says well you know when, once you start from that premise you you build a system around it obviously 
but then he kind of, you know, there's a point in the book, the bit that I kind of most familiar with, where he speaks about this baseline everyday communism, and he's kind of saying, well, when you look at like everyday kind of life and interaction between people, most people don't say, uh, you know, do this for me and I'll do that for you, sort of thing. You know, he's like yeah. gives examples like, you know, pass the salt, and you don't say, I'll only pass you the salt if you pass me whatever. Like, it's like yeah. really simple things, but or yeah, like yeah. imagine. Imagine like working in a in like a building site is another example. I think a building site's a good one because you know there's a huge amount of cooperation needed between people with different skills, you know. And he kind of says, you know, we often interact in this way that could be understood as from each con to the ability to each con to the needs. And when you look at something like a building site, okay, you have few people with like different skills, I guess, you know, some people might be better at carpentry, other better with kind of metal, other people might be better with stone or whatever, and you have different skills within that and tasks, but in general, you kind of work together to cooperate to achieve a certain task. And, you know, if, if somebody says, like, you know, oh, pass, pass me the hammer or pass me the drill, you don't, you, it's not an exchange, you know, you're working yeah. together. And, and I guess that's the power of uh, people's power to cooperate is one of the things that Marx thought as well, you know, that people were inherently social and had these communistic tendencies anyway, which is what Graeber says, you know? Yeah, it's, cha- it's channeling, you know, mutual aid, isn't it, Kropotkin, uh, you know, it's, um, and, and it's fundamentally questions the, the that sort of selfish Hobbesian uh, yeah. idea which underpins, like, capitalism, and it's arguing actually, you know, human social relations aren't naturally like that. We've talked a bit about not not the depressing elements, but uh, I guess the more of the maybe more of the analytical elements of Graeber, and I think it's maybe time to talk about some of the more hopeful elements because I think you know that is the defi- one of the defining qualities of his writing is this idea of he he is he was a hopeful man. I guess that's what happened. I mean, and personally, I think that's the people who are more engaged in activism, ironically, are the people who are the most hopeful. But that's neither here nor there. One of the things I wanted to talk about was, um, you know, because we just talked about everyday communism, it is, you know, that his his version of democracy because it like just like the everyday communism is basically channeling, I think, you know, mutual aid, a factor in evolution. When he talked about the democracy project and direct democracy and his engagement in Wall Street, uh, in Occupy Wall Street, it was a really amazing analysis of well, what democracy is and the liberatory power of democracy, which I definitely think is something that like the left, and particularly like, you know, I'm going to just say it, the Labour Party just don't care about democracy. There's so many people that don't care about basic things like proportional representation. They don't care about like, you know, um, one person, one vote and things like that. Um, they just don't care about his liberatory potential because for them, power comes first. I mean, he reflects on occupying a theory and practice of democracy is amazing. And the first part of the book, of the Democracy Project rather, is basically a critique historically of liberal democracies, you know, like the US. Um, and he basically talks about, you know, the constitution of the US. Um, it says nothing to do with democracy and how so much of it was actually about the creation of the modern, you know, what we call democratic state, you know, I'm doing air quotes, was actually about actively suppressing democracy. You know, like he says, you know, we don't want too much democracy. That's like the fundamental defining feature of like places like America you know, the people designing the systems we lived in, we live in now rather, realise that democracy, true democracy, is obviously incompatible with like, you know, extreme wealth inequality, because if it was true democracy, then, you know, the poor would basically take their money away. So you have to put systems in place 
that happening, such as like ideological control, reducing it to voting. And I think it's worth talking about, you know, direct action and direct democracy, because that is key to anarchist thought. After four years, we've still not done um, our introduction to anarchism (laughs) explainer podcast, which hopefully you're going to do with us soon. But one of the key tenets of anarchism is direct action, isn't it? You know, the the prefigurative politics, which is basically the idea that, but it's like kind of like one of those Instagram posts, you know, be the change you want to, you want to, is is one way of, is one way of looking at it. He actually talks a lot about direct direct action uh, and he uses classical uh, or direct democracy and he uses classic anarchists like Emma Gold to describe what it is. And I'm going to just uh, go via that so I don't trip myself up. He basically, I mean, I think this is pretty good. He said direct action implies acting for yourself, you know, so, and, and again, this actually ties in, it, it, it's unbureaucratic as well, which again ties neatly into what he's you know the utopia of rules so there are some themes that run through his work um so direct action implies acting for yourself in a fashion in which one may weigh directly the problem with which you are confronted and without needing the mediation of politics politicians or bureaucrats if you see some bulldozers about to wreck your house you engage in direct action to directly intervene to try and stop them you know direct action places moral conscience up against the official law it's the expression of the individual's readiness to fight to take control of his life and to try directly to act on the world that surrounds us to take responsibility for for one's actions so yeah it's about it's it's aiming to achieve our goals through our own activity you know rather mm-hmm. through the actions of others particularly not through relying on the bureaucracy of oh we need to elect this person then we're going to entrust everything to them to fix and then if we don't like it we can maybe vote them out every four years it's about taking power for yourselves and actually acting on the world that way it's there's a massive difference between direct action which is central to anarchism and other forms of political action such as you know voting lobbying and even forms of protest that are the norm in wales you know we go on marches but that you know it's not a form of direct action because it's not actually directly engaging with a problem uh, confronting it and actually solving it yourself and yeah you know it, it's so it's basically demonstrate it, it's it's politics that is doing it's doing you know yeah. aids picket sabotage you know squatting patients rolling strikes wildcat strikes it's establishing for example uh radical podcasts uh, <laughs> uh you know food banks and things like that it, it's it's prefigurative politics it's a way of it's the antithesis of people who go, ooh, how could we do this? If only someone would do this, you know? Yeah. It's doing it, it's taking yeah. action, and, and actually, we're gonna do this now. And um, that's part of the key, isn't it? It's like when you speak of like prefiguration or so, I mean, there's a lot of talk about that now, isn't there? But look, you know, the question of like means and ends and all this stuff, I mean, that, I mean, I kind of is this, yeah, like you said, it's this idea that the, the organization, the form of organization that you're developing now, mirrors kind of what you're trying to achieve so it's directly intervening and stuff i mean often that results i think in sort of uh defensive politics also like you know tying yourself to a tree to stop it being yeah yeah direct action but i think one thing on the left i don't think we're ever very good at is actually constructing things ourselves i mean whether we're constructing actual material things or social yeah. relations and types of care and you know more positive aspects and i mean that's a that's a different type i guess which is i mean it's partly i think because of the lack of the skills on the left in general like everyone's <laughs> just got like phds and masters and stuff but like nobody has practical skills. Yeah. yeah exactly 
it's frustrating because we should have should have talked about you know the fundamentals of anarchism before this. But yeah, the idea of building the old, the new world rather, in the shell of the old, is the key to prefigurative politics. And Graeber uses the example, you know, um, so for example, the direct actionist, for example, does not just refuse to pay taxes to support a militarized school system. Uh, she combines with others to try to create a new school system that operates on different principles. Uh, she proceeds as she would if the state did not exist and leaves the state's representatives to the side whether to send armed men to stop her. We've just passed the anniversary of Francisco Ferrer, the great anarchist educator's death. And, you know, this is why anarchists, you know, have built anarchist schools, for example, around the world and, and have tried to live in a way that is basically prefigurative. It's their own way of doing things. It isn't waiting for the state to act. It's actually creating something and doing it now. And Graeber wrote about this and he lived it, particularly mm-hmm. the Occupy movement. And I think, you know, Occupy, you know, Occupy Wall Street was a fantastic and really interesting political project, which when we look back, it, it will, I think we'll realise it, you know, it did have huge, it did have huge significance. A lot of people criticise it, but for not having sort of tangible goals. But one of the interesting things about direct democracy and one of the reasons Graeber gives us so much hope is that, you know, he talks about going to these meetings in New York and, you know, these uh, horizontal meetings where everyone gets to speak and participate you could say that's sort of like hippie or whatever but i think the key is that he says that participating in direct action and direct democracy is in its you know even if occupy didn't achieve its goal for example or you know political even though they didn't really have they didn't seem to really have political goals he says participating in something like that is really transformative and it illustrates in a new way of doing politics beyond voting and even protest and basically at the time I was teaching this anti-politics module in Bath, I felt like a massive fraud because I'd never really taken part in any direct actions. And the, the module convener, uh, Ivan, who we've had on in, the, um, in a previous podcast talking about Nesta Macno, Ivan, you know, is an actual anarchist who lives this stuff. And he brought his friends in who were hunt sabs and squatters and things like that to talk about their experience. And I was like, oh, you know, their theory and practice of anarchist education, you know, and I'm sort of law-abiding, sort of square, basically. And then I think it was it was really weird because it happened at the same time, pretty much. I remember we went on an anti-racist march in Cardiff that was organised by, you know, all the usual suspects, some good, some terrible. And, you know, it was a succession of Labour people given these sort of incredibly uninspiring speeches about stopping austerity, even though they're administering it you know, <laughs> in the Welsh government and on a city level and so on. And it was pissing down. And I remember like walking back from this March feeling like utterly dejected, like far worse than when I'd started the March. It was just incredibly depressing because I was like, well, this is the left. Uh, someone texted me, who's now a good friend, I won't get him in trouble, but someone texted me and said, oh, we've squatted goody who? So at the time, Guildford Crescent in Cardiff was undergoing quite a famous and tragic demolition. And at the time, basically all bureaucratic attempts to stop this happening had failed. You know, there'd been a protest march. People had written letters. People had lobbied the council, blah, blah, blah. And they were just, yeah, we're ignoring you. But this group of anarchists squatted Goody Who and basically held out and said, we're going to, you know, we're, we're not going to let you bulldoze it. We're just going to hold down the building. And actually, when I went to the squat, and, you know, when they had their successes in stopping it being knocked down, it was one of the most transformative and powerful experiences of my life. And I really understood then 
what Graeber was talking about and I realized how important it was because once you have the once the scales sort of fall off your eyes and you realize almost like the power citizens have to do things like that you know you realize that you know politics isn't just about voting it's not just about like lobbying letter writing and petitions it can be far more transformative and that is what and if you look at his there's videos of Graeber doing Occupy and he's doing like sit down teachings you know, he's teaching people, you know, they're having debates and stuff. And you can see these young people sitting next to him thinking like, holy shit, you know, like I feel powerful. You know, I feel like I'm, I'm involved in something historical, but also I'm changing the world. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, this is a complete, yeah. but um, that is what, for me, Graeber, Graeber's anarchist idea of direct action. It was central to his idea of democracy. And I don't know, there's just so many lessons for, for the left in there, I think. Definitely. I mean, like when you consider something like uh, democracy, I mean, you're not going to speak to anybody who disagrees with democracy. I mean, it's like literally the most abused term, I think, in the English language, you know. Although people don't know what it means, you know. Exactly. So so then you challenge people on the practices and principles of what democracy is and you kind of, you know, whereas if you're using the language of maybe anarchism or something, People will be like, ah, oh, you know, you're just like, you know, be fearful of it. Whereas democracy is something sort of everyone agrees is a good thing. But, you know, when you get down to the principles of it, I think this idea of direct democracy is like, you know, probably the most pure form of it. And you kind of have to kind of be dragging things that way as much as possible, you know. I mean, like the, the direct action stuff, I remember in that book, he was speaking about like this squatter community in uh, Denmark called Christiana. Yeah, one, been one, yeah one of the things they, that they do there apparently is like at Christmas, they, uh, you know, a bunch of them dress up as Santa and they, yeah, they basically just steal loads of toys from the shops and start giving them out on the streets to all the kids just so that the kids see the, you know, the cops coming along and obviously, you know, kicking the shit out of all these people dressed up as Santa. <laughs> you know, explaining the kind of, you know, this is how capitalism works, you know, this is what keeps people from, from you know, being able to have things, essentially, you know. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's, it, it's a really, I mean, Democracy Project is really important. And yeah, it's full of hope and it's, I guess, it's key in that it's Graeber uh, channeling sort of classic anarchist thought uh, in his writing and practice. And he basically says, you know, like for the left, the way forward is to emphasize democracy. It's not even to be obsessed with like power or bureaucracy, uh, power or bureaucracy in the same way, like, for example, the British Labour Party is. He says, you know, the truly liberating thing. And again, this is exactly what Mark Fisher said, Um, you know, the, the main the you know, almost like the main problem of capitalism or yeah it is economic inequality but it's also the fact that people are locked out of decision making and the fact we've got no control or agency over our own life you know that's that's the that's the main and and the fact yeah. that democracy is a complete sham um and people feel um like they can affect change and that is why you know you have to get as many people as possible to sort of get involved in in direct democracy direct action to yeah. And to feel, you can feel empowered by that. You know, you can feel empowered by that. But I think one of the problems at the moment in the British left is that people don't even, you know, democracy in this country and in the West in general has been reduced to uh, voting every four or even five years in Wales and going on a protest march. You know, those are the forms of like doing politics on the mainstream left. And those are both fundamentally alienating for a lot of people. You know, you, you don't feel powerful or enfranchised or engaged doing those things 
they also don't change any. They also don't change anything, and they also solve problems. I mean, it's just a lot of lessons in the liberatory power of democracy, really. Yeah, and a, and a very like a t- particular type of democracy as well. I mean, I don't know whether he actually engaged with Bookchin in real life. He must have with you know the crossover with the Kurdish stuff, but like you know, obviously Bookchin was kind of. You know, he rejected anarchism towards the end of his life and developed something called communalism. <laughs> communalism. And uh, anyway, he was kind of like his whole thing was about this form of trying to create direct democracy assemblies. Uh, you know, in this sort of dual power thing, counter the ca- ta- counter to the capitalist state or whatever. And you know, it's got to be uh, it's got to be central, really, to kind of what the what the left does. And I think I mean I think that was actually one of the things that. Um, Drew Graeber to kind of Corbyn and McDonnell actually was because they were engaging with uh, social movements, opening to them, and at, like you know at least rhetorically talking about yeah. democ- democratizing things. You know, yeah. like, talking about kind of community wealth building or democratizing the workplace. These were kind of policies that I think uh, Graeber got on board with, and you know, was obviously fairly non-sectarian anarchist kind of got engaged with. So. Well, one of the most important things about the direct democracy stuff um, and direct action is that, you know, they say the form is really important. And again, I mean, I go on criticising the British left and stuff, but Graeber basically says that, you know, you can't achieve power or change society through engaging in undemocratic politics yourself. You know, you're not going to change society by stitching things up behind the scenes um, so that, you know, the actual form... The form of like the form democracy and your political action takes is really important. You know, you can't have, um, you're not going to build a non hierarchical hierarchical society if your politics is built on hierarchy, exploitation, you know, and a lack of democracy. It has to be participatory. I mean, because nothing's going to change. So, like, the the actual form is really important, you know, and, and it's through engaging in. You know, basic things like, you know, just being able to discuss things, being able to debate and have a say uh, on the left. These things are important. I mean, that ties into the sort of anarchist vision of like, you know, being sort of, you know, more historic sort of anarchist critique of being, you know, anti-vanguardist and anti-authoritarian, you know. And I guess that consensus sort of process is one way of building that. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a, it's kind of a big question once you kind of start broadening it out. But. Yeah. Now I think that it's kind of. Um, I mean, I remember him saying, like Graeber saying, you know, he's he's kind of credited with uh, that phrase, "We are the ninety-nine percent or whatever for Occupy." And he was like, "Oh no, actually, I only came up with ninety-nine percent. You know, someone else said we, and someone else said that." Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. it's done through this sort of consensus building, but like, you know, it's kind of a a neglected uh, area, I guess, on the left. This question. Of course, it is. No, yeah, it, it absolutely is. And yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the um, direct action book here. Um, and he says, you know, your structure of your own action and organization, he says, should become a kind of micro utopia, you know, a, a vision uh, or model in itself, your vision of a free society. And I think that's really important. And um, it's interesting because he had, you know, Occupy was criticized. But like Graeber says that the revolutionary strategy based on direct action and direct democracy can only succeed if the principles of direct action become institutionalized and this is interesting he says you know temporary bubbles of autonomy must gradually turn into permanent free communities so you know they can't exist in total isolation and they Mm -hmm. have a confrontational relationship with everyone around them you know they have to engage somehow larger economic social or political systems that surround them lest they get 
co-opted. So, you know, for me, that's like, that's important because it shows that he, you know, that for me is an argument against lifestyle anarchism. You can't just pull back and create your own enclave. And yeah, yeah. If that's not enough for Graeber, you know, you have to, you've got to try to transform society as well. That's what Bookchin got frustrated with, was this kind of lifestyle, kind of hippie an- uh, anarchism, I guess. You know, this kind of critique, this sort of individualist, you know, you kind of just go off and create a commune and detach yourself from society or whatever. And yeah, I mean, we should have, like, I, you know, I have a problem with that as well. Like, you know, I think in general, yeah. you, you kind of need to, on the left, I don't think we're very good at engaging with, uh, you know, I mean, regular people, I mean, like non, like perhaps apolitical people, you know, yeah. wouldn't describe themselves as leftists or, you know, be afraid of the word socialism, definitely be afraid of the word anarchism, you know. But I mean, we, we somehow need to sort of inject ourselves into those spaces and start practicing these principles that Graeber speaks about. I mean, yeah. I guess one of the main takeaways for me is like, how do you actually do that? Because I mean, otherwise you do create sort of cliques and, you know, closed off kind of exclusive groups full of people who've just, you know, got degrees and can speak the right kind of lingo, you know? Yeah. And when he was talking about um, Occupy and like, it's really, you know, the relationship between sort of anarchists and left, he was like, you know, it's, it's, he basically says it's tragic and it's, um, it's bad that, you know, you do have, for example, you know, the anarchist Black Cross Prisoner Collective, you have anarchist communes and squats, and people live, you know, they, and they live fantastic anarchist, like, you know, not, not anarchist lifestyles, um, is maybe not the best way to describe them, but they live in a way that is, you know, they live in the way he describes it. They live in direct, in forms, in direct democracy ways within uh, capitalism. He says there are these places, these practices uh, and places even are also isolated from even the wider left. Uh, yeah. So, you know, like he said, that um, when people started to turn up in Seattle uh, and engage in forms of direct democracy, like, you know, like these big debates and stuff like that with no like hierarchies, it really took like the left by surprise as well, because people mm. the practices and, um, and ways of behaving um, that are almost underground. Yeah. You know, one of, I'm sure he would want one of his legacies to be for that way of thinking about how we do politics to actually infect. Well, that's a rough word to 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 put to to permeate and become normalised on yeah. the, sort of the social democratic left. Because one of the biggest things about you know the, the takeaways from the last election when Corbyn lost, you know, I think it was fairly universally agreed upon that the left is isolated from working class communities and it. It doesn't have a basis in working class communities, you know, and it's like a middle class leftist, you know, good people. But nonetheless, they're being bussed up to communities to campaign for, you know, Blairites or whatever in every four years. You know, that is not a model of politics, which is emancipatory, democratic. I think the people who were reflective enough, reflective enough rather to recognize this, their mode of doing politics, as I said, is just basically based on voting or, you know, trade union bureaucracy or protest marches and i you know if you look at the work of graeber and anarchism in general then you can see well actually there is another way of doing politics Absolutely. it's the direct action mindset which will allow you to actually embed in communities and do tangible things for people yeah yeah you know if like you know if there's an issue with a neighborhood you don't have to just like lobby or go on a march you, know, you can try to do it yourself it I doesn't the- activity to actually do that 
uh, and to think about ways of solving these problems. Um, you need the skills also, you know, I mean, the yeah, skills that's exactly capacity. It. I mean, the, the capacity is also a big one because who has the capacity to do these things? Like, we're also overwhelmed by the types of things he was referring to earlier with kind of, you know, crazy job, work-life balance and all that. But, you know, I think that there's like a, you know, when you're speaking there, it's making me think, cause, I mean, you wrote that piece after canvassing around Bridge End and stuff. And like, you know, people, I think that's one thing we have to take away is, first of all, that like, you know, working class working class people working class communities are not sort of um passive or in need of sort of saviors from the outside you know that there's like there's this yeah. in, there's this sort of uh, power there that we just need to recognize and engage with and i think you know like that's when the left has been historically the strongest you see, you see like this kind of um the colin ward stuff yeah you know, mutual aid institutions that were built up in places like the south wales valleys these were like absolutely crucial. I mean, like the NHS was created by working class people. It wasn't created by the Labour Party, you know? Yeah, exactly. It, it and became vulnerable, I think, because of the Labour Party. That's, that's my issue, you know? You sometimes have this thing of like, well, it, it required the Labour Party to universalise the NHS, for example, which, you know, I'm partial to that argument. But then on the other hand, it also made it vulnerable because once you kind of give over those institutions to the state, you're only one election away from it being destroyed, you know? And actually, you know, Stuart Hall, um, in I think it was a great move and right show, he actually said, I mean, I forgot about this when we were talking about the, uh, talking about the utopia of rules. Stuart Hall actually said that, you know, the welfare state in the UK was undemocratic and it was bureaucratic and it was sprawling and people yeah. did feel that it was top down and stuff was happening to them. Um, and that was, in many ways, he says, what allowed, you know, the the narrative of Thatcherism of being about individual freedom sort of latch on because, you know, because there was an element of truth to the critique of the welfare state. But what you say there is absolutely key about institutions. What is, you know, Braver talks about, you know, ordered anarchy. And in the previous podcast we did with um, Ivan, when he talked about Nesta Makno, it's about you can have order, but you can create institutions which are oppositional outside, you know, the capitalist or neoliberal way of doing things. Um, and, you know, I, as you said, it was, if you look at like the, the work class culture of South Wales, you know, people didn't used to go on this, is, you know, shout out to Ted Jackson, but people didn't used to go on protest marches necessarily because we built institutions. Yeah. Ed, you know, we built our own institutions, which were outside, um, outside capitalism, which, you know, which 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 are based in communities and i really think that's the key to the left is to build institutions. Yeah. but yeah it's just i don't know it, there's, a, there's a lack of creativity and this is why everyone should read david graeber yeah absolutely and there are pockets of it happening in real life you know i mean you look at like for example somewhere like jackson mississippi where they're trying to build this it's sort of semi-anarchistic which is kind of I guess where I sort of see my politics in general, you know, but they're doing like these things that are building these mutual aid institutions, you know, they're engaging with kind of people like Bookchin and Graeber and the autonomous Marxists, the council communists, you know, the ideas out there that left can use to build these things again, you know, and it's, and it's kind of empowering once you start thinking about it, you know, you, you kind of, th that capability to, uh, just build things and to do things uh, together for yourself because you know everything has always been built by, uh, by by kind of working people or however you want to describe it you know it's kind of there's a power there that I think the left is weirdly sort of um, 
sort of neglected and like you said there's that division between i think the sort of thinkers you know the kind of what you'd generally think of people on the left who argue on twitter like like myself and like and doers and people who do things on the ground so we somehow need to like be more embedded in the sort of everyday rhythms of like of places really i think i think i mean that'd be my main takeaway from Greyburn. you know he always had this saying of like um you know the capitalism uh, dominates like you know there's no question about that capitalism dominates uh, but it doesn't pervade and so like you know there there are kind of signs of mutual aid and direct dem democracy and stuff like that that people are always practicing you know not non-leftists probably better actually in some ways and you know we just need to kind of somehow kind of get involved in some of that stuff outside of kind of the leftist bubbles i guess that's a good hopeful way of uh, finishing in terms of the text to read, what would you recommend for, for people getting into Graeber? I mean, I think the strike article on bullshit jobs, you know, I mean, it's short, it's accessible. I don't think the book necessarily offers too much more than it. It's just a yeah. longer version. Uh, debt is hard. I work, like, you know, I'm struggling with that. You've won the top of my head. A lot of people have listened, they've listened to this now, so you don't... Yeah, yeah, they'll have, they'll have goods like, you know, you basically have an economics degree after that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, you know... Um, I also think, I mean, personally, fragments of an anarchist anthropology is, uh, yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. I think that sort of contains the seeds of a lot of his ideas. Um, I'm trying to think, what about you? Yeah, well, Utopia of Rules and Bullshit Jobs, I think, um, uh, are amazing. Yeah, it's, it's just important to read uh, the, some of the stuff he said, but also, like, you know, watch videos. He, he does he, yeah. loads of great speeches and, and, and talks. He's a really engaging speaker. And he was a true public intellectual. So, you know, you can just listen, listen to him on podcasts or whatever. Um, but the main thing is to, is to read him and, and learn from him, I think. Yeah. Oh, an absolute pleasure, my friend. Any, uh, any shout outs, pal? Or any beefs you want to start? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Uh, no, I don't, well, maybe I could, I could, I'll have a shout out to, um, who's basically my, basically my brother-in-law in Germany, uh, Frank O'Connor good kind of good Irish socialist now living in Cologne uh, he listens to the podcast he's a big fan and uh, yes Frank yeah, yeah. you know he's man. from the socialist heartland of West Limerick <laughs> but no no he's uh, yeah that'd be my shout out and uh, what about yeah. your what about your fiance life <laughs> she said that I was like nah. she doesn't listen oh did she yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, all right. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. I'll uh, I'll uh, make you a cocktail sometime. But yeah, I hope so, man. Well, hopefully this doesn't have to be uh, reciprocated. You know. Well, it it, I, it, it won't be because I can't make it. <laughs> when when I used to be a cocktail waiter, I used to just say to people, say to people who asked, I just say, I'm really sorry, I haven't got any mint. <laughs> uh, I'm really sorry, I haven't got any whatever, or um, we haven't got any sours. And then other wait staff be like, Yeah, yeah, we do. And I'm like, shut. Up. <laughs> no, I, it's a, it's a universal skill I need to learn to make. And you shared making with a wine. Make one though. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening. Um, please subscribe. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Desolation Wales. Subscribe to our Patreon. Give us money so we can make videos. We can uh, do more stuff, basically. Because obviously, without money, you don't have time. And um, without time, you can't do anything. So that's why we need uh, money, essentially. But yeah, we've got some great shows coming up. Some live ones. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And thank you all so much. Bye, bye, bye. Um, I come from the United States, where everybody is taught that
democracy you know, comes from the founding fathers who created the Declaration of Independence Constitution. And you know, the amazing thing is if you actually look at the Declaration of Independence the Constitution, it doesn't say anything about America being a democracy. Uh, no one ever talks about this. Um, and if you look at it, you know, and you, you figure out why, you read the original documents, you realize that actually those guys hated democracy. They said so all the time. Um, you know, I actually saw the opening speech of the Constitutional Convention where uh, the you know people gathered together to create the American Constitution. And the first speech is by uh, Governor of Virginia. He says, we've got a real problem in this country. There's a real danger of democracy breaking out. Um, there's democratic <laughs> elements in a lot of the local constitutions. We've got to do something about this. What are we going to do to prevent democracy? We need to create a federal system, you know, so forth and so on. So the entire constitutional project is an attempt explicitly to suppress democracy. Uh, now, what do they mean by democracy? Well, they meant this. They meant people sitting around in squares, publicly discussing what to do and brainstorming ideas and, and resolving their own problems in an equal fashion. And why were they against it? They said very blatantly. I mean, John Adams, um, who was, I think, the third president, uh, uh, wrote, said, well, one man, one vote? Well, that, that's insane. You can't have democracy. We have, you know, we have like 10 million people with no property and 1 million people with property. What do you think is going to happen if you give these guys the vote? Um, you know, they're going you know, to appropriate us right away. Um, so they made very clear that there is no way you can have real democracy if, you know, uh, if you have vast inequalities of wealth without people actually taking, you know, undoing the great inequalities of wealth. Now, what they have done over the last 200 years is figure out a way, A, to take these institutions which were basically created to stop democracy and convince everybody they are democracy, and B, to like um, get people more and more involved in the system, since uh, gradually they did expand it to one man, one vote, and still somehow not have them do the thing everybody was afraid that they were going to do in the beginning, which is expropriate the wealth. Uh, it's been one of the, you know, I mean, Millions and millions of very ingenious people have been working on how to do this for years. It's one of the greatest feats of propaganda ever done, but it's ultimately backed up by force. And the moment you really seriously challenge it, well, we all see what happens.